0: Uh, before I begin today, let's just take a pause and, uh, and bow together in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for what brings us all together here today, and that is a desire to worship you with all our hearts, to be together as a community of faith, and to hear from your word. And we thank you that by your spirit you will teach us today. We also want to think of each other. Uh, we, I want to pray today. Uh, For Pat Entz specifically. Pat's heading into uh, surgery tomorrow morning uh, on her back to relieve pain that she's had for some time. So we pray that you would guide doctors to uh, perform that procedure, to give her relief, that you would guide uh, the entire healing process for her and be with Lynn too well as he cares for her. Lord, we pray for Linda Wagner as well who uh, just let me know this week that she lost her place to live and is desperately looking for a place to live. And I pray that you would uh, provide for her uh, uh, soon so that she can know she has a place to be safe and to live. We pray for uh, Jill Locke journal as well. Her mother is very sick in the hospital. And we ask for uh, healing and your presence and comfort with uh, both Jill and her mom during these days. Thank you again for hearing our prayers today and teach us in ways that we can understand. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, one day, a couple of weeks ago, uh, just about 10 days ago, I was finished, finished up a couple of meetings here at church. I was on my way home on Randall Road. It was about lunchtime, so I, was, I decided to stop in to McAllister's for a sandwich. Anybody know where McAllister's is? Right down there on Randall Road. Nice little sandwich shop. So I pulled in and um, looked up on the board and saw on the, on the menu board a grilled ham and cheese sandwich. Uh, that's what it said, grilled ham and cheese. And I like Grilled ham and cheese, so I ordered a grilled ham and cheese sandwich and a sweet tea. So I sat down, opened my laptop, and began to do a little work there as I waited for my sandwich to arrive. And when it arrived, I took a couple of bites of the sandwich without really looking at the sandwich. I was just working, just eating my sandwich, my, what I thought was a grilled ham and cheese sandwich. But after a couple of bites, I realized something didn't, didn't it wasn't bad, but it didn't taste quite right, and it didn't feel right in my mouth you know what i mean and so i took a closer look and my grilled ham and cheese sandwich was actually a grilled ham and cheese and tomato sandwich <laughs> there was a slice of tomato slipped between the ham and cheese hidden in there now i don't like tomatoes <laughs> do i have any fellow tomato haters out there well you you get me then thank you i can't explain it i like ketchup i like spaghetti sauce. I like pizza sauce, but I don't like tomato. Something about the texture of it just kind of grosses me out. So I felt deceived by my sandwich. Uh, I didn't order a grilled ham and cheese and tomato sandwich. That's not what it said on the board. I ordered the grilled ham and cheese sandwich. Now, if you're going to put tomato on my ham and cheese, I want to be warned about it. Just put it on the board so I know to take it out, right? truth in advertising. But I finished the rest of the sandwich, but I just couldn't, as you can tell, I just couldn't get those first two bites out of my mind. Today we talk about a different kind of contamination, a more serious kind of contamination. Our series, of course, is the seven churches of Revelation, and Jesus has been revealing who he is by speaking to seven real historic churches in Asia Minor uh, and and, uh, spread around cities in in the Roman Empire. And along the way, I think he's been speaking to us right here as well. Chapel Street Church in the far western suburbs in uh, 2021. He's been commending these ancient believers for some really, really good things. He's been confronting them about some things that need to be changed or corrected. And he's been calling them toward the hope that he has promised to them. Remember the church in Ephesus uh, held to sound doctrine, but the Lord said, You've lost your first love. And then came the church in Smyrna who who, who were faithful through poverty and great suffering. And then last week we looked at the church in Pergamum. This was a church also faithful in a hostile culture, but had allowed some destructive teachings to begin to take root in the church. And today we look at a similar church, the church in Thyatira. Now we're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Let me read this to you. These are the words of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I'm going to pause there a couple things as we start. First, a little background about Thyatira. Uh, You can see it here on a map. It's in uh, the little red box there. It's uh, just closest to Pergamum, but a little inland from that. And all you need to know is that Thyatira was the smallest of the seven cities we're looking at, where the population of Ephesus was uh, between a quarter million and a half million people, large ancient city. Uh, the population of Thyatira was believed to be only about 25 to 30,000. So think roughly the size of Batavia or Geneva. In fact, some scholars believe that the Christian community in Thyatira was so small and insignificant that the Roman authorities didn't even think it was worth persecuting at all. Uh, Thyatira appears to be, to have been a kind of industrial town dominated by what were called labor guilds, sort of like trade unions today, only these were mixed strongly with uh, pagan cult superstitions and sacrifices and practices. And to belong to a guild at that time was very, very significant. It's how you got a job. It's how you made business connections. Uh, but it required certain pagan rituals and participation in feasts ...to the local deities and gods, small g, that often were accompanied by great immorality. Uh, There were guilds, for example, for leather workers, for wool workers, for weavers, for bakers, tailors, candle makers, etc. But two of the most significant guilds of Thyatira were the dyers of purple cloth, uh, which was very popular and expensive. Remember a woman named Lydia from Acts chapter 16? She was the Apostle Paul's first convert in Europe... And she's identified as a merchant in purple cloth, and the book of Acts tells us she was from the city of Thyatira. The other uh, guild that was significant were, were for bronze. was for bronze smiths. These, these uh, workers specialized in what was called burnished bronze, which was a highly polished form of bronze, and it served uh, in the ancient world as the closest thing that we have as mirrors, so a highly polished. Polished bronze. The main local deity was uh, a god, again small g, named uh, Tyrimnos, or the sun god. The Greeks called this god Apollo, and both Tyrimnos, the sun god, and the emperor of Rome were called the sons of Zeus. We're going to see the significance of that in just a moment. Uh, This here is an ancient coin. Uh, from Thyatira. It's specifically a Thyatiran coin. It's hard to see, but there are two images on there, one of the god Tyrannus, and the other of the Roman emperor. So you can see how their, their belief system structured even their currency. Now, it's interesting, interesting to note here for us that even though the church in Thyatira was perhaps the smallest and most insignificant of the seven churches we're going to study, Jesus actually has the most to say to them. This is the longest of all the seven letters. Now in each letter, you recall, Jesus identifies himself with a particular phrase uh, that come from John's vision in the first chapter, which we looked at several weeks ago. In John chapter 1 we read, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. "...and on the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace." And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he has held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, the vision of Jesus that John saw was so overwhelming that John says he fell uh, at his feet as though dead. But to the church in Thyatira, notice Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God who has eyes like flaming fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. There are three very significant phrases here as we begin. First, Son of God. This is the only time this phrase appears in the entire book of Revelation. Son of God. And it's likely that Jesus chooses this phrase as a way of identifying himself because he knows that the local population referred to the emperor and to Tyrimnos, the sun god, as the sons of Zeus. He's saying... They have the sons of Zeus. I am the son of God. Secondly, eyes like fire. Fire in Scripture is an image uh, for the holiness of God, that which purifies. Uh, it, it's telling us that Jesus is holy and also that he sees all. He sees both outward actions and inward motivations of the heart. By way back in 1 Samuel, we read, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And thirdly, feet like burnished bronze. As I mentioned earlier, the people of Thyatira were familiar with bronze working and with burnished bronze, and this is a symbol of both purity and authority. So Jesus is saying, I have the moral purity and the spiritual authority to judge all things. So the church in Thyatira may have felt like they were small, may have felt insignificant, But notice, Jesus did not see them that way. They were not insignificant to him. Okay, let's continue in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, once again, we see three parts to this letter. We see a commendation, we see a correction, and we see a charge. First, a commendation. So, we're uh, a little over a week into the Tokyo Olympics. Anybody still following along? How many of you are just emotionally exhausted from watching the Olympics? We're watching every night at our house, and it's like, every night it's like, oh, she won, she won. Oh, no, she, Mr. Landing, she didn't stick to the landing, she lost. Oh, he won, he won. Oh, no, he lost by a hundredth of a, of a second or whatever. I don't know how much more of the thrill of victory or agony of defeat I can take. But the main focus of the Olympics, of course, has been on athletes who win, right? That's, that's what we see, the athletes who win, because we, we're interested in those things, who set, gold, uh, set uh, world records and win gold medals. But I started wondering about all those other athletes, you know, the ones who don't win. So I did a little research. How many? Do you know how many athletes are at the Tokyo Olympics? Anybody? Take a guess. A thousand or more? Five thousand more? Ten thousand or more? Yeah, eleven thousand, two hundred and thirty-six. It's a lot of athletes. Do you know how many medals total, gold, metal, gold, silver, and bronze are awarded in the entire Olympics this year? 339. Which means that only 3% of the best athletes in the world are going to win any kind of medal. 10,000 superbly trained athletes who spent their whole lives training are going to go home empty-handed. But that's not all. That's not all. Take a look at this photo. You probably don't recognize these folks, but that is the German equestrian team, winners of the gold medal. Now, what do you notice about this picture? Take a good look. I'll wait. Where are the horses? (laughs) Some of you knew where I was going with that. There's no horses on the medal platform, only human riders. Why doesn't the horse get a medal? What does the horse get a little glory, right? They're the ones running around, jumping over fences, banging their shins on stuff, you know, carrying a human being on their back the entire time. But what do they get? Like a bag of oats or something? Like, thanks a lot. Now, I know some of you understand that uh, training. I I know that. I'm just having fun here. Okay. Um, (laughs) Commendation. Verse 19. I know your works your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In that one sentence, there are six commendations, different categories in which the church in Thyatira gets a medal, at least according to Jesus. He says, I know your works. The Greek word here is ergon, from which we get our English word ergonomic. It means literally physical work, work, task, something that's been accomplished. This was a working class town, The citizens of Thyatira understood the value of hard work and evidently so did the believers because it's saying that their actions matched their beliefs. And this is a good thing. James chapter 2 tells us, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That's the same word, ergon. Can that faith save him? if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and if one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body." What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus commends them for their works. And secondly, he says, "I know your love." The word here is the great word agape. It's the love of God. And this is the only church of the seven that Jesus specifically commends for their love. Compare this to the church of Ephesus where he says, you have lost your first love. Not so with Thyatira. They loved each other. They loved their neighbor. And Jesus commends them. Thirdly, I know your faith. Says their works and their love are motivated by faith in Christ. Paul to the Thessalonians writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before uh, God, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus commends the Christians in Thyatira because their works and love are motivated by faith. Next he says, I see your service. The word here is diakonia. It's the same word used in the New Testament most often for service or ministry. We can assume then That out of their love, they served. They served the poor, perhaps. They served the needy. They ministered to the sick. Jesus commends them. Fifthly, says your patient endurance. I see it. This is the great Greek word, hupomone. One of the great words of the New Testament refers to endurance under trial or opposition. It's one of the qualities Jesus seems to admire most and appreciate most in his church. By the way, did you see the Olympic story of the young man named Kevin McDowell? Anybody? Kevin McDowell. He's the young man from right here in Geneva Who finished sixth in the men's triathlon, an event by itself requiring great endurance, biking, running, and swimming. And even though he didn't win the medal, his sixth place finish was the highest ever for an American man. And on top of that, if you read his story, he was a cancer survivor in his late teens. A great story, uh, example of Hupamone, a patient endurance. Finally, Jesus says, Your latter works exceed the first. Now, what does that mean? I think it simply means that this church, although small, was still growing. Let me show you some graphs. This graph shows growth followed by plateau. This happens to many businesses, uh, organizations, even churches that will grow and then kind of level off and sort of tread water. Um, The next graph shows rapid growth and then decline, all right? Um, Did you know that today in America, some 80 to 85% of all churches are either in plateau or decline? Like that. That, by the way, is also the exact graph of what the Cubs season has been like this year. (laughs) But Thyatira looked like this. See that growth curve? Continued and sustained growth. And by the way, if you chart the growth of Chapel Street Church, formerly First Baptist Church of Geneva, over the 127 years of our existence, it looks exactly like that. The growth is even a little steeper toward the end. All right. The church in Thyatira may have felt insignificant, may have felt small, but Jesus did not see them that way. Your latter works exceed your first. He commends them for their works, their love, their faith, their service, their endurance, their growth. And by the way, here at Chapel Street, at this church, we value all of those and, want to, and we aspire to grow in all of those same ways. But then after the commendation comes a correction. That's the second part of Jesus' message, a correction. When I was in the 11th grade, um, I had to take trigonometry. They probably take trigonometry now in like 7th grade, but I, I had to take it in 11th grade. How many of you remember trigonometry? Fondly. Anybody? Anybody? Uh, yeah, I don't understand you guys at all. Because this was a problem for me. Uh, just looking at all the equations right there on the screen, just get, just, I get the cold sweats just looking at those. First of all, when did letters get involved with math, right? <laughs> my own approach to math was quite simple. If I could calculate my batting average in baseball, my scoring average in basketball, I was good. Everything else was pretty, you know, pretty much unnecessary after that. Uh, my teacher was a man named Mr. McCaffrey, who was a real stickler, uh, and, and he was also the, the head track coach at our school. And when my work dropped rather dramatically below sea level, if you know what I mean, uh, Mr. McCaffrey set up a, a secret surprise intervention that I did not know was coming. He walked me into his office, and there sitting in his office was my head football coach. Coach Gennaro, a man I called Coach J, who I both feared and respected, and I didn't know he was going to be in there. And Mr. McCaffrey proceeded to show Coach J all my work, my declining work. And then he said, I still remember to this day, he said, Coach, I just don't understand how someone like Mr. Coffey can apply himself so diligently out on the field and yet make such a poor effort in the classroom. You know, I'm hanging my head like that. Um, I think it was because I I didn't run track. Actually, it's because I was lousy at trigonometry. Coach Jay listened quietly, and when Mr. McCaffrey was done, my coach looked right at me, peering with those dark, beady eyes into the depths of my soul with eyes like fire. And then with the slightest of winks, because I think he knew what was going on, he said, son, sounds like we have a problem with motivation. And he was right. And my motivation improved uh, very quickly after that. L- look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now let me stop there and just make a, a guess. Some of you, if you're honest, are just a bit uncomfortable with those last few verses. Like I struggle with trigonometry, Uh, some of you might be struggling with this rather fierce picture of Jesus. I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will throw them into great tribulation. I will strike her children dead. And part of you is going, what? Where's Where's the kind, compassionate, forgiving Jesus? I like that guy a little better. Like Celebrity personality Oprah Winfrey once said, my God would never judge anyone. Remember, Jesus has already revealed himself as the one with a sharp two-edged sword, uh, the one with eyes like fire, with feet like burnished bronze. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And if we really think about it, while this is hard for us to read, do we really want a God who doesn't recognize both good and evil? Do we really want a God who is unwilling or unable to judge, to hold those who do evil accountable? Do we really want a God like that? Now, two things here. First, the word Jezebel. Jezebel likely refers to both a a real person uh, living at the time in the church in Thyatira, a female prophetess or teacher, and is also a highly symbolic name. Jezebel, you may remember, is a character in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. Uh, King Ahab of Israel was one of the worst kings, most evil kings Israel ever had, partly because he married Jezebel, who is from a pagan nation. And immediately upon marrying, Ahab began to import all the foreign gods of Jezebel's people, uh, gods like Baal and Asherah. And uh, the two of them together were responsible for leading the people of Israel into all kinds of idolatry and rampant sexual immorality. It's a sordid story. So evidently, there is a person, a female teacher, prophetess, who has risen to prominence in this church, who is teaching a version of the gospel that assimilated uh, with local pagan practices. Okay, the second word is tolerate, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now notice here, this is interesting, Jesus is not so much confronting Jezebel as he is Judge uh, as he is those in the church who are tolerating Jezebel for failing to rebuke and to remove her. And just a word about this word tolerate. In the Greek it's ephiami, It means to let go of or to permit. Later on we're going to see Jesus <coughs> Excuse me. talks about holding fast. So the question is to what do we hold fast and what do we let go of and permit? And that, by the way, is the central question of the church throughout the ages. It appears that the church in Thyatira was a bit confused about what to tolerate or let go and what to hold fast or claim to be true. And I think we can see this same struggle in our culture today. Tolerance has come to mean not just that we are to treat other people with respect No matter what they believe or how they act, that's a good thing. We are to love our neighbor. We are to love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's what Jesus said. But rather, tolerance has now come to mean that we must accept every opinion and every claim to truth as equally valid. Do you hear the difference? There's a difference between those two things. Except, of course, in the case that if I claim, for example, that the Bible is true, If I claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then I must not be tolerated now in our culture. But that's a whole conversation for a different time. The interesting thing about this is that anyone who has ever been a parent knows this is not so. If you've ever tried to raise a human being, you know there are certain behaviors and attitudes that must not be tolerated if you want to raise a civilized little person, right? Every athlete knows this. That you can ride any kind of bike you want in a bike race, tolerated, red, blue, whatever. But you just can't ride one with a motor attached to it, right? We all recognize this. And this is where the church in Thyatira seems to have been confused. Apparently their love had degenerated into a kind of lazy tolerance that caused them to be unwilling to confront a dangerous heresy right in their midst. The issue was spiritual idolatry that led then to immoral behavior. So, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what leads to this kind of misplaced tolerance? Let me suggest three things. First, a desire to fit in with culture. Everybody is doing it. everybody's saying it. Everybody thinks this is so, and we don't want to look weird or out of touch. Spoiler alert. As followers of Jesus, we are always going to look a little weird and be a little out of touch with prevailing culture. Always. We're always going to be swimming against the stream. Secondly, a failure to rightly define or recognize sin. I've said it before, but our culture really no longer uses that word sin, but we all know what it is, right? Just watch what happens when a celebrity or a politician commits some sort of... uh, Um, inappropriate behavior and they get crucified in the media, right? We know what sin is. We simply don't call it that and we don't think it's in ourselves. Thirdly, a compromising of truth. I think the central confusion of our culture is a current belief that truth, listen to this, the confusion is that truth comes from inside us. That's the gospel of our culture. Truth comes from inside you. You get to decide what's true for you. The Bible says truth comes from outside of us. We can have opinions, but we can't decide truth. Now, we might say we don't have temples to pagan gods in our culture. We don't have trade guilds that involve sexual immorality. But let me challenge that. If a temple is that to which we are devoted, if a temple is that to which we look, for, uh, look to for hope or comfort or meaning, I think we have all kinds of temples in our culture. The temple of wealth and accumulation, for example. The temple of sexuality. The temple of politics. Ultimately, the greatest temple of them all in our culture today, I would call the temple of the self. The temple of self. I had a man uh, say to me years ago who had had an affair with a secretary at work that resulted in a pregnancy. And his defense of himself was, well, she makes me happy. God wants them to be happy, right? That's not God. That's the temple of the self. Now notice Jesus says here, I have given her time to repent. See, God is gracious and merciful and patient, even toward those who mock him. But she has refused, he said. To repent, so Jesus is simply saying, eventually and inevitably, judgment is coming. So there's commendation, there's a correction, and the third thing we see is a charge. I'm just calling a charge, Uh, verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. By the way, here I think Jesus is speaking sort of tongue in cheek. Uh, I think that Jezebel. This teacher likely was claiming to know deeper things about God. And he's saying, No, 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 no. Those aren't from God. Those are the deeper things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule. That word rule literally means he will shepherd them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, for the rest of you, hold on to what you have. Jesus is saying, I've given you everything you need. You have everything you need, so hold fast. Hold fast to my truth. Hold fast to my word. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to my promise. And here's the promise. To the one who conquers, that word means victory, to the one who holds fast, I will give authority over the nations. See, they thought of themselves as insignificant, small, unimportant. Jesus says they will be eternally significant. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him with him. And then Jesus says, "I will give him the morning star." Now what's that? What's the morning star? If we look ahead to Revelation chapter 22 verse 16, we read, "I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star." The morning star is Christ himself. He promises to give us himself. We will see him face to face. We will dwell with them. We will reign with them. And that's his promise. Uh, Last week, we did a little yard work at our house. um, And that involved doing a little weeding. And I hate weeds almost as much as I hate tomatoes, but I hate weeds. And I hate to weed. It's hard work. You got to bend over and dig in the dirt and stuff. And weeds weeds are just relentless, aren't they? They're just relentless. They pop up in my lawn. They grow in our flower beds. Sometimes they even impersonate flowers. (laughs) My wife always says, that's a weed. That's a flower. That's a a weed. And if I do nothing, right, they take over. If I don't recognize the weeds, if I don't root them out, eventually I'll have nothing but what? A yard full of weeds, right? In a way, that's what was happening or threatening to happen in the church at Thyatira. And it's interesting and perhaps tragic that by the 2nd century, this letter is written at the end of the 1st century, by the 2nd century, church history makes no further mention of the church in Thyatira. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that that church ceased to exist, swallowed up by the weeds of a pagan culture. Jesus says, hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to what you have. I'm coming soon. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, how I thank you for your word today, for this word to an ancient church and for this word to this church. Thank you for loving us enough to commend, to commend us, for encouraging us. Thank you for loving us enough to correct us when we, when we drift. And now, as we begin to prepare for your table with this bread and cup, remind us to hold fast to what we have. In your name, amen.